0: Everybody, it's 11 o'clock, and thank you for joining us for the 55th and Halloween episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, AKA the Rock and Roll Shrink. We will be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now a topic relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away doc. As always, thank you for that. And please let us know the name of the song, the artist, and its relevance to tonight's topic.
1: Well, that was uh, the uh, excerpt from the opening song on the first Black Sabbath recording and the song uh, aptly entitled Black Sabbath. (laughs) Uh, They take their – which, and I can sort of incorporate this into a little trivia dilly for our listeners – they took their name from a very famous uh, early 60s, I think it's an early 60s, maybe late 50s, uh, Boris Karloff movie by the same name, horror movie. So that's uh, how their name got done. So I thought, given that we're talking about uh, being afraid and the psychology of fear, I thought this would be kind of a nice uh, Halloween-themed tune for us this evening.
0: Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. As Dr. Mathis mentioned... Uh, Tonight's topic is entitled Fear of the Dark, The Psychology of Fear for Fun, which we will discuss in a moment. The title is a nod to an Iron Maiden song of the same title. Before we begin tonight's topic discussion, let's go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir.
1: So in addition to the aforementioned trivia piece of data I gave you, um, what I thought I'd do tonight was talk about a couple of things that are horror-related, although one of them isn't necessarily rock and roll-related. It's actually how the uh, American version of Halloween got to be what it is today. So most people probably don't know that originally uh, Halloween was a Celtic festival uh, called Samhain and it was really to celebrate the end of the summer and the harvest and the beginning of winter, which also had to do between the, the old and the new and the boundary between the worlds of the living and the world of the dead. And so they thought that that one particular night, the boundaries got a little fuzzy. Um, So uh, what they would do is uh, do all sorts of things to uh, kind of, you know, uh, celebrate that and to ward off negative things. And that's where the building of bonfires comes and where they're burning crops and burning animals as sacrifices to the Celtic deities and doing scrying and wearing of costumes and celebrating and all that kind of stuff. Um, this was actually continued with the Romans, which when they came in and Celt- conquered the Celtic lands, they had a, a celebration day that they merged uh, with uh, the, the Samhain, and actually two days. One was uh, called uh, Feralia, and the other was, was Pomona, which was the god to celebrate the goddess of fruits and trees, which is uh, where the tradition of bobbing for apples comes from. So then you kind of fast-forward it to the Christian interphase. They wanted to kind of, you know, distance that. So in 1609, I think, Pope Boniface I decided he was going to do something to honor Christian martyrs. So he was going to do that uh, on November the 1st, the All Saints Day, which is how that came about. So this was kind of a way to incorporate a pagan ritual from the Celts and the Romans and turn it into a Christian ritual so that, uh, you know, you you weren't essentially eradicating it, you were incorporating it into your own religious beliefs, which was an easier thing for some folks to swallow. So eventually, Samhain eventually became All Hallows' Eve because it was the eve before All Saints' Day or All Hallows' Day or All Hallow Mass, as it's called in the ancient English, Middle English, and eventually Halloween, right? The evening of, of All Hallows' Eve. So, yeah. So as this came on, Uh, and you had the Irish immigrants coming over here and the uh, English immigrants coming over here. They brought some of these traditions over and with these new wave of immigrants um, they sort of had this thing uh, where they meshed some of the uh, harvest ceremonies of the Native Americans for the folks that were already over here with some of the English and Irish traditions which then turned into this Halloween celebration thing and this Thing we call trick or treat, right? So this is also something they uh, they carried over because they would do certain they would eat certain treats uh, in order. Uh, the women particularly that if they could uh, do certain prophecies or divinations or eat certain foods before they go to bed, as they would dream about their future husbands. So this sort of turned <laughs> into them pulling pranks and doing all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, to kind of take the Negative connotation of of the witchcrafty kind of ghosty kind of scary stuff out of it, and then by that time, you know, of course, then you have the Salem witch trials and all that kind of crap happened. So it kind of got put on the shelf for a while. It got re-energized in the 20s and 30s because it had now turned from a kind of a religious kind of thing to a secular holiday, where it's now become like way, you know overboard and all this kind of stuff. The trick-or-treating also comes from a thing called soul cakes, where poor citizens of the day back in England would come and beg for certain foods and promise to pay for the donating family who donated the food to them for their uh, loved ones that had passed by, ergo soul cakes. So that sort of also became part of the, the food tradition. And how black cats got associated with this is because their association with witches and because they're black, and black's kind of seen as the color of evil, uh, although that actually comes the, the cats and the mystical connection actually comes from the Egyptians originally um, because of you know Bast, the uh, Egyptian goddess of the dead and uh, so it's cats have long been revered in a lot of your ancient cultures. Uh, and in the Middle Ages, that came to the point where people actually thought that certain witches would turn themselves into black cats. Uh, but they also believed that, you know, witches were agents of Satan and all this kind of good stuff. That all this kind of stuff got going on. So, what's happened is. The trick-or-treat thing also came, turned into costumes and pranks and, you know, things got a little crazy. And, of course, as we usually do in America, we kind of put that on steroids. And, of course, now, you know, uh, people are also using that as an excuse to do all sorts of um, malicious mischief, which they have no business doing on Halloween and doing nefarious things like putting razor blades in candies and all kind of crazy crap. But anyway, that's, that's the origins of our now secular holiday uh, even though you know you, there's some uh, religious groups here in America that still consider it a "quote unquote" satanic holiday, it was never a satanic holiday. It can't be satanic because the Celts didn't believe in Satan. So if you can't believe in something, how the hell are you going to worship it? I mean, come on, people, really? <laughs> you know they don't believe in God either. So then they're equal opportunity bigots, right? Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it is definitely not. For those listeners out there, please disabuse yourself of the fact that this is a quote-unquote satanic holiday. Ain't no such animal. Um, Although I will tell you, my take on the fact that Halloween is evil is because one quarter of all the candy sold annually in the United States is purchased for Halloween. (laughs) So uh, if you want to talk about it being an evil sugar holiday, it is definitely that. (laughs) You and the death yeah, all joking aside, and the other the piece of rock trivia I'll tie to this is that when Alice Cooper originally got clean and sober back in the 80s, he did his comeback show on Halloween. Um, and 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 does a big show. A lot of Halloween, he will have this big Alice Cooper scare fest uh, rock show where he does all the you know, because he does the theatrical stuff anyway. But really goes all out on Halloween, and he typically will do a really kick ass show on Halloween. That was his comeback show from after getting clean and sober and being kind of gone from the industry for a few years. When he came back in the early '80s, he did his kind of comeback show on uh, Halloween. So there you have it. Very nice. Thank you.
2: Uh
0: Yeah, no, I I am familiar with the majority of that story. It's also something that we as a culture have done to uh, Christmas and Saturnalia and um, the Uh winter solstice and so forth, Long Night Yule, and we've done it to Ostara, Easter. Yeah, we've done quite a bit of that to try to get the Celts into the fold. (laughs) And uh, yeah, somebody Christians with Irish heritage, unique... I know quite a bit about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, Christians have a unique way. Uh, we, we seem to have a unique way of uh, swallowing other people's holidays and stealing it from them and then morphing it to our own uh, desires. So uh, to some degree, shame on us. It's like we can't come up with yeah. our own stuff. I mean, come on. we, we got to be more creative than that, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's what, we've talked about that separately on, on different shows. You know, maybe we'll do a topic about that sometime, about you know appropriation of that sort of thing as as a manipulation tool, but uh, and a cultural seems-
1: phenomena yeah
0: yes,
1: yeah okay. well I mean if you, you probably know this, and I'll just and I'll shut up after this I mean you probably know this, but I mean if you look at accounts you know of the biblical uh things that are going on at the birth of Jesus, it probably wasn't in December, it was probably closer to July or august f y i yeah so yeah,
0: probably, yeah I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but there is a a phrase called Christmas in April, and it has to do with a charity that is somewhat similar to Habitat for Humanity. And, you know, it's a, it, they work with people who are impoverished and that sort of thing. And, and that is the point. They come and they help these people out and, you know, literally work on their houses or their cars or, you know, whatever, try to get their life back on track. And that's kind of where that phrase comes from because it was the time of the shepherds and the time of the lambs, which is spring in Palestine like it is here, uh-huh. they're in the same America. So, yeah, I mean it's common knowledge that the Pope moved the celebration of the birthday to December to compete with Saturnalia because the church was not getting attention I mean, that's a mm-hmm. documented fact mm-hmm. so, Oh, yeah, oh, I, not- I hear you not- yeah. righty, so All right. um, let's go ahead and move on um, We will be taking calls from our listeners again, as a reminder, and questions in the online chat room throughout the evening until around midnight Uh, Please feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. Okay, so tonight's show is called Fear of the Dark, The Psychology of Fear for Fun. So most of us enjoy Halloween, haunted houses, ghost stories, scary movies, and other entertainment designed to scare us for fun. So what is it about them that appeals to us? Isn't fear a bad thing? So we will get into the psychology and the biological reasons behind our attraction to being scared to amuse ourselves. We will also talk about why some people aren't attracted to this custom, and a few cautionary tales about being scared. So tonight we will discuss, first, an overview of the psychology of Fear for Fun. Next, the biology and history of Fear for Fun. Third, the dark side of the dark side and not in the Star Wars sense. And um, for just <laughs> conclusions about the <laughs> I, I, guess you're I had to time. do that. Yes, and, and let me check in with you before we get going to see if you have anything else to say, Lord Vader.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Obi-Wan is crazy <cringing> well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good, thanks. <laughs>
0: Fabulous. All right, let's go ahead and get to our overview. The first part, an overview of the psychology of fear for fun. So scaring ourselves on purpose as entertainment is an ancient custom in humans. We have had some documented form of this behavior since the earliest days of our civilization throughout all cultures and regions of the world. A lot of the material we'll be covering tonight may primarily be more biology than psychology, However, biochemistry and our environment have direct effects on our psychology, and so this is still important to our discussion. The most common themes in our modern day fear culture stem from everyday things that act unexpectedly and often malevolently. Other common themes involve the unknown and unfamiliar, loss of control, loss of orientation in reality, and inevitability. And I'll check in with you, Dr. to see if there's anything you want to add on that point.
1: No, I'm good right now. Thanks.
0: Okay. So this next section is probably going to be the meatiest one. This is the biology and history of fear for fun. So let's talk now about some of the biochemical reactions that naturally attract us to choosing to be scared on purpose as amusement. There is a biochemical quantifiable difference in our brains between fear for fun and actual fear of imminent danger. Not everyone reacts the same way to being scared for fun because not everyone's levels and ability to process irrelevant chemicals are identical. We'll also talk about some of the sociological history of fear for fun around the world. So the first article that I would like to bring to you is called Why We Love to Be Scared. The physical, psychological, and social reasons we crave thrills and chills. It's written by Margie Kerr, PhD, and was posted October seventh, twenty fifteen in Psychology Today. And she says, The combination of friends, thrills, chills, and spooky things thrusts our body, namely the emotional processing centers in our brain, the amygdala, insula, prefrontal cortex, hippocampus into a perfect state for encoding layered and strong memories. We store intense emotional experiences with more detail and importance than non-emotional experiences. It's our body's way of making sure we remember what makes us feel good and to seek it out more and what makes us feel bad and to stay away. Usually when we're scared, it is a bad thing. It's our body's well-developed threat response system, letting us know something is not quite right and preparing us to run or fight. This sophisticated system triggers a chemical cascade meant to help us survive. Adrenaline, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, among others, flood our bodies and brains during and for a little while after a scary situation. But this response shares a lot with other high arousal responses, like when we're happy, excited, and surprised. The context is what is important when it comes to whether we put a positive or negative spin on the experience. Being scared, lost in the woods alone with no help in sight, bad. Being scared, lost in a haunted house with your friends, with professionals no more than 20 feet away, ready to whisk you out of danger, good. Not everyone likes being scared, though, even in a safe place. For some A racing heart, sweaty palms, and the grueling weight of anticipation is just too much to tolerate, let alone purposefully introduce, induce, pardon. But for others, and it seems those with particularly efficient dopamine and reward systems, being scared in a safe place is a source of enjoyment and makes them feel good. It can even serve as a confidence boost, reminding us that we can make it through a scary situation. We are strong. And I'm actually going to check in with you real quick before I go to the next article, Dr. Matt, to see if there's anything you want to add.
1: Well, how convenient, because I was just going to say.
2: <laughs> do, 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 I heard do, it in a do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, really. Um, this is not dissimilar to why people like roller coasters.
2: Yes. Yes. Right, because
1: it's a safe kind of thing. And you know, you know, it's a little dangerous, but the likelihood of it being like really dangerous, dangerous is, you know, not very high. You're strapped in; it's a relatively safe thing. But it's a way to get a cheap thrill and, you know, get your adrenaline going. And it's why some people love it, and some people go, nope, we're we're good. <laughs> so there you go. Well,
0: yeah, and and we will actually talk about that in the very next article. Um, one of the common histories of Roller coasters and modern day stuff actually is um, a proto roller coaster that they kind of invented out of ice slides in Russia. And I'll get to that in a couple of pages.
2: That's very nice.
0: Yes. All right. So we'll go. Oh, oh, punning is nothing to be ashamed of, but wash your hands afterwards and don't do it in public. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the next article is Why Do Some Brains Enjoy Fear? The Science Behind the Appeal of Haunted Houses, Freak Shows, and Physical Thrills. This is by Allegra Ringo, written on Halloween uh, 2013. And Allegra is a writer and comedian based in Los Angeles. Her work appears in uh, Vice and the Hairpin, and she is a regular contributor to the Higgs Weldon. And this article was posted in The Atlantic. All right. So she interviewed... A particular person and this is an excerpt from her interview and she says Dr. Margie Kerr, M-A-R-G-E-E Kerr, is a staff sociologist at scare House, a haunted house in Pittsburgh that takes all year to plan. She also teaches at Robert Morris University and Chatham University and is the only person I've ever heard referred to as a quote scare specialist. Dr. Kerr is an expert in the field of fear. I spoke with her about what fear is and why some of us enjoy it so much. So Allegra is asking questions, and then Dr. Kerr will comment. So first question, what if some people like the feeling of being scared while others don't? Dr. Kerr says, not everyone enjoys being afraid, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that no one wants to experience a truly life-threatening situation. But there are those of us, well, a lot of us, who really enjoy the experience, First, the natural high from the fight or flight response can feel great. There is strong evidence that this isn't just about personal choice, but our brain chemistry. New research from David Zaid shows that people differ in their chemical responses to thrilling situations. One of the main hormones released during scary and thrilling activities is dopamine. And it turns out some individuals may get more of a kick from this dopamine response than others do. Basically, some people's brains lack what Zaid describes as breaks on the dopamine release and reuptake in the brain. This means some people are going to really enjoy thrilling, scary, and risky situations, while others, not so much. And parenthetically, by the way, the David Zaid that is mentioned above is David H. Zaid, Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of Psychology and Professor of Psychiatry, Director Interdisciplinary Neuroscience Program for Undergraduates, Director of the Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. He is among other related specialties in neuroscientists and neuropsychologists. I just wanted you guys to know the pedigree of the guy who was uh, asserting this. And she continues, lots of people also enjoy scary situations because it leaves them with a sense of confidence after it's over. Think about the last time you made it through a scary movie or through a haunted house. You might have thought, yes, I did it. I made it all the way through. So it can be a real self-esteem boost. Next question. What happens in our brains when we're scared? Is it different when we're scared in a fun way versus being actually afraid? Answer. To really enjoy a scary situation, we have to know we're in a safe environment. It's all about triggering the amazing fight-or-flight response to experience a flood of adrenaline, endorphins, and dopamine, but in a completely safe space. Haunted houses are great at this. The deliverer a startle scare by triggering one of our senses with different sounds, air blasts, and even smells. These senses are directly tied to our fear response and activate the physical reaction. But our brain has time to process the fact that these are not, quote, real threats. Our brain is lightning fast at processing threat. Next question. What quality do scary things share across cultures, or does it vary widely? Answer. One of the most interesting things about studying fear is looking at the social constructions of fear and learning and learned fear versus those fears that appear to be more innate or even genetic. Each culture has its own superhero monsters. The chupacabra from South America, the Loch Ness Monster, Scotland, the Yokai, which is supernatural monsters from Japanese folklore. I hope I said that right. <laughs> Alps, and this is not the mountains, and I don't, I actually should have looked up if there's a relationship, and I didn't, sorry about that, but these are German nightmare creatures, and uh, this is a side note for me, it's interesting, the Germans um, as evidence for example in the unexpurgated Grimm's fairy tales were very, very fond of using scary stories without very nice American endings to teach children to behave, the actual original Grimm's fairy tales have very horrible endings that Americans wouldn't put up with, and that was very common to get children not to do stuff. You know, if you go in the woods, the witch will ac- actually eat you. There's no hunts- huntsman coming to rescue you. But I digress. Okay, so, um, but they have, all have a number of characteristics in common. Monsters are defying the general laws of nature in some way. They have either returned from the afterlife, ghosts, demons, spirits, or they're some kind of non-human or semi-human creature. This speaks to the fact that things that violate the laws of nature are terrifying. And really anything that doesn't make sense or causes us some sort of dissonance, cognitive or aesthetic, is going to be scary. Acts wielding animals, masked faces, contorted bodies, and so on. Another shared characteristic of monsters across the globe is their blurred relationship with death in the body. Humans are obsessed with death. We simply have a hard time wrapping our mind around what happens when we die. This contemplation has led to some of the most famous monsters, with each culture creating their own version of the living dead, whether it's zombies, vampires, reanimated and reconstructed corpses, or ghosts. We want to imagine a life that goes on after we die, or better yet, figure out a way to live forever. Again, though, that would violate the laws of nature and is therefore terrifying. So While the compositions and names of the monsters are different, the motivations and inspirations behind their constructions appear across the globe. Last question. What are some early examples of people scaring themselves on purpose? And here comes your um, ice ride story. Humans have been scaring themselves and each other since the birth of the species through all kinds of methods like storytelling, jumping off cliffs, and popping out to startle each other from the recesses of some dark cave. And we've done this for lots of different reasons. To build group unity, to prepare kids for life in the scary world, and of course to control behavior. But it's only really in the last few centuries that scaring ourselves for fun and profit has become a highly sought-after experience. My favorite example of one of the early discoveries of the joys of self-scaring is actually found in the history of roller coasters. The Russian ice slides began, not surprisingly given the name, as extended sleigh rides down a snowy mountain in the mid-17th century. Eventually, instead of ice and sleds, tracks and carriages were constructed to carry screaming riders across the, quote, Russian mountains. Even more exhilarating terror came when innovative creators decided to paint scary scenes on the walls that shocked and thrilled riders as they passed by. These came to be known as, quote, dark rides. People were terrified, but they loved it. We haven't just enjoyed physical thrills. Ghost stories were told around the campfire long before we had summer camp. The graveyard poets of the 18th century, who wrote of spiders, bats, and skulls, paved the road for the Gothic novelists of the 19th century, like Poe and Shelley. The 19th century also brought the precursors to the haunted attraction industry sideshows or freak shows and the museums and houses of oddities have existed since the mid-1800s Perhaps the most notable is Barnum's American Museum operated by P.T. Barnum best known for being half of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus His museum contained things like monkey torsos with fish tails attached and other characters meant to frighten and startle Much like modern haunts customers would line up to challenge themselves and their resilience and dare each other to enter the freak shows and face the scary scenes and the abnormalities. And I'm going to check in with you before we go to the next story and see if there's anything you want to add.
1: No, I'm good. Thank you.
0: All righty. Boo! <laughs> okay, so the next article related to this is Why We Love to be Scared by Aaron Blakemore and that is from September 2nd, 2016 on JStore.org, and J J S. T-O-R, it's, all, it's an acronym. The JSTOR Daily is an online publication that contextualizes current events with scholarship. And so this is an excerpt from that paper. Quote, why do we love scared, being scared so much? As Katerina Bantanaki explains, it's all because of a careful dance between hedonism and control. Bantanaki wrote several peer journal papers on this topic Including the paradox of horror, fear is a positive emotion. Um, and this, she's from the Department of Philos- Philosophy and Social Studies, University of Crete in Greece. And this was published in the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism, Volume 40, Number 4, Fall 2012. Bantanaki is, suggests that the experience of being in, in at least some control, quote, knowing, for instance, that I can leave the theater when I want. I can tolerate the queasiness that I feel watching the using slime on screen, end quote, translates into pleasure for horror movie enthusiasts. Even when the emotions and experiences elicited are gross, horrifying, or negative, the intensity of the experience can also be pleasant. Bantanaki discusses emotional balance, a term used in psychology to refer to the in- intrinsic attraction or aversion of a certain emotion. Also called, quote, a basic building block of emotional life. Balance dictates how individuals respond to events and emotions. Fictional horror, writes Bantanaki, has a positive balance that reinforces itself. Perceived risk is controlled, strong emotions are strong emotional reactions are achieved, and terror never turns out to be true. Quote, whatever accompanying pleasures the fiction might provide, writes Bantanaki, we seek horror, I contend, primarily in the hope of the intense positive emotional experience it affords us. And I'm going to check in with you one last time, so we we'll go to the next part.
1: Uh, thank you. you know, one of the things I would also say, and kind of goes along with what Dr. Kerr was talking about, is this kind of stuff, along with horror movies, for example, scary movies, is gives us kind of a rehearsal, if you will, to lessen our, and to become more Comfortable with the notion of death, which is why you know you've seen this plethora of zombie movies lately, and uh, excuse me, the Living Dead, and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, that's been existing since the vampire stuff. It's kind of our way of kind of getting used to a concept that for most of us is pretty uh, not comfortable. (laughs) So it gives us sort of this experience, sort of practice, if you will and a little bit of a desensitization to try to make us feel just a little bit better about the fact that we're all going to be doing something we don't want to do sooner or later.
0: That's a very good point. And I actually, I've also kind of noticed, I I dabble a little bit in writing, and I've done a lot of work with horror and that that sort of thing. Um, And I've kind of noticed that it's considered very maverick, for the living dead to not be evil because it's almost like we can't, we got to put them down and put them out of their misery or whatever. So if they're actually nice in some way, we'd feel really bad about it. we so always have to be monsters. Uh-huh. They have to yep, kill it. And every once yep. in a while you get a movie like that's usually an independent film or something where the zombies or the whatever are either victims or they're nice. And then people don't want to kill them anymore. And it, it gets super awkward but it's kind of a fun space to play with because that is what it's really about. You know, it's, it's us facing death.
2: And mm-hmm. that's kind of
0: part of the attraction. So, yep, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, section three is the dark side of the dark side. So in matters of mental health, things are one size fits many or most, but there are a great many people who do not react the same way as what is considered neurotypical. So in a case of something like fear for fun, you must know your own triggers, boundaries and limitations and police yourself and the activities in which you engage. We're now going to talk about the cautions and concerns surrounding the practice of fear for fun. There's absolutely nothing inherently wrong with this custom. Just like extreme sports or stressful and intense jobs and so on, you must be physically and mentally ready to get involved, and they're not activities for everybody. So let's talk about some areas of concern, both myths and truths. And the first article is Spooky Health Effects of a Good Scare by Jillian Moni, M-O-H-N-E-Y. It was written October 28, 2013, and this was uh, on ABC News on their website. And she says, An intense scare can do more than elicit a good scream. It can physically affect the body as the neurological system releases intense chemicals in response to a threat. For most, the response to a fright is more or less harmless, with the body becoming primed to fight or flight its way out of a bad situation. But in extremely rare cases, people have literally been scared to death after a surge of adrenaline and other chemicals causes the heart to malfunction. With Halloween around the corner, we've talked to experts in order to understand exactly what happens when you suffer a good scare. And they have different aspects and stereotypes of being scared like that. First one, blinded by fear. It turns out that you can be so frightened, you can temporarily lose your sight or hearing. Dr. Martin Samuels, chair of the department of neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston said, The reaction is part of the fight-or-flight response, during which the brain redirects all energy to vital body functions. Quote, you can have a severe fright that can cause any part of your nervous system to fail, says Samuels. Why this happens is related to adrenaline-like substances. Uh, They go into the bloodstream and affect all the organs. The next one is going white overnight. And this refers to people getting that little shock of white in your hair. There's little proof that a good fright will turn a person's hair white instantly, but there is a condition that makes it appear as though you've gone gray virtually overnight. People who suffer from telogen effluvium lose older hair follicles rapidly. As they lose hair, gray strands that were hidden and are often newer become more prominent, making them appear gray almost overnight. Dr. Joshua Zeichner Director of Cosmetic and Clinical Research in Dermatology at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York said that hair loss usually comes three months after a big emotional event quote it can be emotionally stressful or physically stressful even such as an infection or surgery says Zeichner. the most common situation is postpartum women fortunately the situation is usually temporary and within about a year the hair will grow back Although Zeichner cautions that he can't guarantee the hair won't come back in gray. Next one is moving in slow motion. People who have gone through a sudden traumatic event often describe the feeling of time slowing down or things moving in slow motion. Dr. Martin Samuels at Brigham and Women's Hospital said that the slow motion feeling is part of the body's fight or flight response where your brain will only let you focus on a perceived threat. As adrenaline and other drugs flood the system, they can make a person hyper-focused on the danger. Quote, it's called a disassociative state, says Samuels. It's kind of a hypnosis where your nervous system is focused on one job and everything else is held at bay. Pale as a ghost. After being scared, a person will sometimes be described as looking as pale as a ghost. But it turns out that the phrase has evolutionary roots. When faced with a threat, the body will instantly start sending blood to vital organs and muscles to help with either a potential fight or flight. Quote, all of your organs are focused on one task, and that's to get away, says Samuels, who points out having a rosy complexion wasn't important for our ancestors who were fleeing dangerous animals. Quote, it happens all automatically. You're not aware of it. Next one is scared to death. In extreme circumstances, you can even be scared to death. Doctors say a terrible fright can result in a massive surge of adrenaline that stuns the heart so badly it stops beating. Dr. Holly Anderson, Director of Education and Outreach at the Perelman Heart Institute at New York Presbyterian Hospital, remembers one woman who was with her husband when he received bad news about his health. When the woman left the room, she collapsed in the hallway. Quote, after I whisked her off to the emergency room and hooked her up to an EKG, I was surprised to see her whole heart had stopped moving, yet she had perfect blood supply to the heart, recalled Anderson, who was also the Director of Education and Outreach at the Perelman Heart Institute at New York Presbyterian Hospital, while Cornell Medical Center. Quote, she was so emotionally overwhelmed about her husband's condition, it literally stopped her heart. End quote. Another interesting aspect specific to Halloween, haunted houses, or any other entertainment scenarios, in which either or both participants and presenters dress up in costumes, is its effect in behavior during the event. And this article is a we'll little snip about that. The article is "Trick or Treat: The Psychology of Fright and Halloween Horrors" by Nick Haslam, who is a professor of psychology, University of Melbourne. This is from October 29, 2015, and it was posted on theconversation.com. And he says, trick-or-treating has also interested psychologists. During this inversion of social norms, children dress as powerful wicked wicked or monstrous beings and taboos around death and evil are relaxed. Researchers have used this ritualized suspension of normal expectations as a creative way to study rule-breaking. Several studies have examined whether being costumed or masked affects children's tendency to take more treats than allowed. Such effects might reveal the dangers of de-individuation, where individuals lose social restraint in groups. Sure enough, costumed children who are anonymous by wearing masks, for instance, are more likely to take extra candies. Halloween also seems to bring out excesses in adults. Costumed Halloween celebrators tend to have higher blood alcohol readings than people in plain clothes. There are also substantially increased levels of vandalism and property destruction. And I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, see if there's anything you'd like to add on this.
1: Yeah, that um, it, it sort of adds to the anonymity and the uh, brazen factor if you're, you know, hidden and you can't uh, be held accountable. What you also see similar to that is the same thing that happens when groups of people get together in groups of crowds, the so-called groupthink, so that the crowd together does things that none of the individual peoples as individual unit folks would do were they alone. So the group has a substantial heightened level of all the beta-endorphins, beta-enkephalons, adrenaline, the dopamine and they're supported by each other's, for lack of a better term, mass hysteria. <laughs> so they get jacked up, and then you're, you, you have this sort of fight-or-flight-esque response, which puts a lid on your prefrontals and lets loose the amygdala hippocampus, the emotional brain, and the fight-or-flight brain, and then you just kind of go crazy. So the, the thing with the Halloween thing, particularly in groups of people, is you also have the groupthink thing uh, adding to... The cacophony,
0: so to speak. Got it. Actually, it's not in my notes, but just out of curiosity, what is it with us that we are? It, this happens a lot on the internet as well. You know, when we have anonymity, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we, we do stuff like, why don't we just own what we're doing? Is it like, why do we feel the need to hide that or? I I don't know. There's just something about that that fascinates me. It's just kind of dawned on me. And people will do stuff if they don't think anybody's going to know it's them. And Mm -hmm. I kind of like, what is that about us that that we do that sort of thing? We let this stuff out as long as we don't get caught. Like, are we ashamed of it? Or, you know, what is that for people?
1: It's a couple of things. And that for some people, it's a shame factor or guilt factor. But for the majority of people, it's, hey, I don't have to pay any consequences. I can do whatever oh. I want and have to, have to make no, I have no consequences. So if I steal, you know, if I shuffle, if I get caught, I'm going to jail or I'm going to have a prison record or I'm going to get fined or I'm going to be embarrassed. If you do it with a mask on you do it in a group and, you know, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle of everybody and you don't know who shot the, you know, who shot the baby rabbit or whatever, uh, or you get into a, uh, a pseudonym on the Internet you can do all these, you know, th- you can let all of your id out, so to speak, let all of your stuff that you've always wanted to do hidden away with zero responsibility or accountability. And so you, you don't have to pay a price for it.
0: Fair enough. Okay, good. Good to know. Um, okay, so the last part is basically just a summary for you guys because, you know, we had a lot of stuff uh, to dump on you tonight, but... Conclusions. So, at the center of all this, fear for fun is based on a few simple principles. Um, first, drawing a clear line between pranks for fun and seriously scaring someone apart from context and control. In other words, going into a haunted house is fine and well. Jumping out and scaring your friend in the middle of July in a dark alley is a good way to get your lights popped out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, yeah, the second part, um, a healthy personal fight or flight response. We noted in several of these articles that people who don't enjoy a good scare like that often have problems processing things like adrenaline and dopamine and serotonin, that sort of stuff. And if they have disorders like that, then the the fright response. In fun and in safety may malfunction, and it, you know it's not fun for them. They, they're authentically scared, even though they shouldn't be. So we yeah, especially
1: the, if, especially have, if they have a compromised immune system, or if they have a compromised cardiovascular system, or yes. a, so, um, a a compromised hormonal system.
0: Yeah, and, and that goes earlier to what I was saying about you have to know your own mm-hmm. limitations. Is, yep. you know, if you can't process adrenaline real good and you get on that roller coaster at King's Dominion, you know, that could be your last roller coaster. Yep. So that, police yourselves, guys. Um, the next factor is security and the knowledge that you are safe in the moment and have control over your environment when needed. You know, for example, I have, almost every haunted house I've seen in the last 20 years has an escape route and monitors. Behind the scenes, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody starts having a meltdown, they will extract you and take you to a lit room with no boogeyman in it, and that kind of thing. Uh, next factor is planning, choices, advance warning that the scare is coming and likely some notice as to its nature. What, some people who deal with this really well sometimes don't mind the complete boo factor. Uh, that's part of the fun for them. But in general, most people... Really like to have some idea what they're getting into, and which is also one reason
1: why you hear where you hear the scary music coming up in a movie before the fit hits the shan.
0: <laughs> oh, oh yes, absolutely. That that is actually an artistic choice for that exact reason because mm-hmm. it builds it builds the reaction up. So you're already in that place when it happens. It's not a complete shock because you know right. the killers are on the corner because they're playing. ch ch you, know, you can tell. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, or the, the and, famous two-note Jaws theme, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that.
0: Yeah. And then the, uh, the next part is a sense when it's over that we have survived, triumphed, and conquered the danger, feeling the accomplishment and bonding of having, quote, unquote, won. This form of entertainment is not for everyone, and that's okay. So we hope that those of you who do enjoy it had an opportunity to indulge in that this week. So I'm going to check in with you, uh, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything else you want to add.
1: Nope, I'm good. Thanks.
0: Okay. Boo. <laughs> All right. Um,
1: you, you know so what's that, funny about this? It's funny that you say that because what's funny about this is I love horror and horror movies and suspense movies. You couldn't pay me to get on a roller coaster.
0: Really? Interesting.
1: Yeah. I know, I'm a complete chicken shit. Let's just be honest when it comes to roller coasters. <laughs> I am. I mean let's just oh you know, it's god. just I, I start I start dropping eggs and, you know, flying feathers. But uh <laughs> oh when god. it comes to horror movies and suspense movies and thrillers and you know, mm-hmm. doing semi dangerous dillies, I'm all about it. Get me on a roller coaster, I'm like Lord of a scarlet. I don't know they might no roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> you know,
0: I know, I have a That's little bit like of funny. an with that sort of thing. My favorite genre that I like to watch is, is of course, the, you know, zombies, modern zombies, Romero-type sure. type yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff, yeah. And not the uh, voodoo-type things. Um, and, I, and I've and i written in that genre, and it scares the shit out of me. My own writing scares the shit out of me. Sometimes I can't read it. <laughs> That's it's, hilarious. It's very hot, you know. I that's right. That fun. is my most terrifying genre, you know, because I I have issues dealing with the, the topic of death. Like you brought up earlier, a lot of this for people is processing death, and that's what that genre is for me, because sure. I have a pathological fear of it, and this is a way of processing that.
1: And mm-hmm. I write in that genre,
0: <laughs> and I own just about every known movie in Western culture of that genre, and it scares the hell out of me, and I do yeah, myself. You know, I'm not a masochist, but apparently in this little exception world, <laughs> somehow I am. And, well, I and think so it it, you
1: know, I think it goes attended. back to what I was saying. I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier: is that you're trying to prep yourself. You know that that's yeah. a weakness for you, and you're trying to build up your resiliency in that regard. And there's nothing wrong with that, if you. But you're the one doing the controlling, right? You're doing the writing. You're choosing when you read it, when you see it. So it's a controlled scared the shit out of yourself in in a, you know, kind of a, a systematic desensitization sort of way. It's not somebody else doing it, it's you doing it. And that's always better.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I definitely can see. And I think that may be the attraction to the genre for me. It's a, it's a way of playing in that space while I'm still here to do so.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go.
0: Fair enough. Okay. Um, So that is the extent of my notes. We're a couple minutes uh, earlier than we normally are. I guess we're not as pedantic as we are other weeks. I don't know. Um, But this concludes our show on fear of the dark, why we love to be scared for fun, and the psychology of being, you know, fear for fun. We hope that our listeners can appreciate the facts behind the fear for fun, understand how this form of entertainment works, and use this knowledge to tailor their own thrill-seeking experiences or avoidance, if desired, to their liking. So I'm going to check in with you one last time and see if there's anything in summary that you want to bring up on this topic.
1: No, I would just say if you know you're a person who doesn't do well with this, don't torture yourself. You know, stay away from it. Your friends like it. Encourage them to watch the movie and then, you know, you go in your room and play guitar or, you know, read a good romantic novel.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And I think to people who deal with this well, um, Please remember that people who don't, sometimes this is biochemical and, you know, it's not, they're not pussing out, you know, they're not being wimps. Sometimes their bodies don't react the way yours do and this is a lot more terrifying for them and sometimes they can't help it. So when you go and do these experiences, if your friends don't want to go, don't bully them into it, don't mock them. You know, everybody has their own jam with this and that's what's really important to, you know, leave room for that. So um, on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and also give our appreciation to those of you who are joining us later via podcast, iTunes, etc. We'll see you guys in two weeks on Wednesday, November 14th at 11 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Actually, it won't be Eastern Daylight Time by then because our clocks go back this weekend. So get your extra hour in, kids, right here on blogtalkradio.com. So please look for us on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and at www.rockandrollstrength.com. So good night, everybody, and rock on.